ultimately, like the spending question is, can I afford this? Like, you know, economists try to argue that when, you know, the actual popular wisdom is that people make decisions based on how much it makes their life easier, more economical, cheaper, more joyful, more efficient. But the reality is that most people don't do purchasing that way. They're more along the lines of like, can I afford this item? Can I like justify this purchase right now? Hi, I'm Joe Beal, the founder and CEO of Microcosm Publishing. I'm also the author of A People's Guide to Publishing, which distills what I've learned from selling millions of books over the past 28 years. I'm Ellie Blue, the vice president of Microcosm. We started this podcast to share what we've learned with newer publishers so you can learn from our mistakes. Or maybe you just want to learn about the publishing industry. information you have at any given time. And um, so second is cash flow. Are we running out of money? Do we need to borrow money? How much does borrowing cost? You know, when are we going to have more money? Where is that money coming from? Are, do those people pay on time? Questions like that. You know, fun questions. Well, kind of sarcastic there. Third is the balance sheet, which is how effective has our previous spending been to grow to our size, making our future easier, and increasing profit sharing. So, like, that's essentially how you look at everything from, like, what are, like, what do we own? Like, what's the value of our inventory? Like, are we making responsible choices, you know? And those numbers have been way up through these past years because we've been able to finance the growth, you know, rather than usually like at our size of growing people have to borrow really aggressively to pay for that amount of growth because you just need so much more stuff across the board and so um those are kind of the three and those are the same you know the bank doesn't look at like when you look to borrow money the bank doesn't look at like your budget or your you know they look at your balance sheet because that really tells them the more of the story about like how good you are with money you know and like if you're underwater like if you've borrowed more money than you should have been able to in the first place and so on the long twisting road into this dungeon uh, we're going to have a little bit of history and perspective on our financial strategy so we are more than 11 times the size that we were when ellie started in 2014 which it doesn't feel that long ago to me but i now realize is nearly 10 years ago so part of that is you know lots of things changed that like freed me up to do more of my job rather than both of our jobs which we did previously but it also means that we need 11 times as much inventory it means we need 11 times as much staffing it means we need 11 times as much space it means we need you know systems that can endure being taxed 11 times as much so you know the growth of particularly the past four years had like a really steep learning curve on our budget because we were just growing into like yet another whole new scale you know and so um we had to spend going backwards again 2012 was a year of cleaning up debts from the company's previous management 
2013 was kind of like building up our foundations to like ensure that we would have a future like we got our billion building on williams um we built a lot of new features into working lit that year so we could do things like running royalty reports and then you know we had to figure out like what systems worked and like what needed more rebuilt and then most of 2014 and 2015 we were pretty deeply underwater with inventory costs like we were just taking on too much inventory and that was harming our cash flow so and a lot of that was my fault like i was overprinting because of my understanding of numbers and sales was 20 years old at that point so i didn't understand that you know, you, you just cannot have that kind of success recreated freely. You know, we have, for better or worse, sold most of those books 10 years later. But at the time, that was like a pretty heavy burden. And then some other things changed too, which we'll get back to. But we were spending so much on books that we couldn't afford to spend it on people is sort of the important point there. So we began cutting print runs and we sort of found our sweet spot in 2018, which is, you know, almost always 3000 books. And then sometimes, you know, it goes up from there, but you know, we were doing four and 5,000 and you know, that isn't always a great way to go. Even if you can sell that many in the long run, but then as these things go, everything changed in 2020 because the price of paper soared and the weird silver lining on that was that it went from being cheaper to do a bigger print run to being cheaper to do very small first printings and then to reprint as needed and you know like we had used to do and so we used to have you know 5000 plus to get uh, the price per book that we needed, but now we could print 2000 to 3000 and get the price per book that we needed. So this cut both our printing and storage bills in half because we no longer just needed to set on all those books. And we didn't need to plan out so far into the future. It dramatically, dramatically reduced our risk. And that was, that's like the other important thing. So if a book succeeded, you know, we could just reprint it. If it sold average, we reprinted it, but just a little bit later. And then if a book flopped, it doesn't flop anywhere near as hard as books used to 10 years ago when we'd be stuck with thousands in unsold inventory. If anybody has watched us send out thousands and thousands of copies of Katrina Sandcastles, that was a 2014 book. And, you know, this was the magic bullet that we had needed for years. And then we began growing the staff rapidly now that we have like found that magic bullet. So, um, you know, I saw the path where we could sell millions or I'm sorry, where we could borrow millions and grow tenfold year over year. But the trouble there is that it fails at some point. If you're borrowing money, you're never gonna, have that growth every single time at the greatest growth trajectory. And at the point of failure, it's very ugly. You know, you things end very badly. So instead I took the different path to protect our jobs and look at the long-term stability and make that the priority, which, and that's been 
part of the reason why, you know, we're not growing aggressively again this year because that was absolutely an option in a different world. So, um, you know, we fought growth this year in order to grow our systems into our current sales and then to finish paying off the costs implicit in this growth and, you know, the growth of the last three or 10 years, depending how you look at it. And then to figure out where small adjustments could make life easier and better rather than like fruitlessly pushing the sliders all the way up, you know, like that was, again, it's it's kind of weirdly the option that most people feel that they have to take and I understand it, but I also don't. And so like we know how to do that, but the costs of limitless growth are just also not necessarily greater than the rewards. And, you know, I just feel like health is a much more important metric than a growth chart, you know, because that's normally the part that people don't talk about is like how well you're financing that stuff or how you're financing that stuff, if at all. So um, step one was adjusting future spending to suit our narrative based on the best picture that I can draw from the past. So, you know, like for example, we adjust this year's print runs based on last year's sales for similar titles like that. And that's the same reason that, you know, you use comp titles to like give bookstores a sense of like what a book will sell. Like that also gives us a sense of like what to print. And so budget, cash flow, balance sheet, those are the major reasons that we are always reminding everybody to follow policy, procedure, and protocol. Like those are, it like always goes up and down the chain, same, same exact things. Otherwise, you know, people are working at odds against each other, you know, and person effort is doing that of their coworkers. So, and since the all profits are shared amongst the staff, minimizing unnecessary expenses and adhering to shared goals is the strategy that benefits everybody. Just like leverage is the thing that benefits everyone the most. And then once we cover expenses, the profits go to the staff. And, you know, again, it's like all full circle. So the past three years complicated that since we had to fund the costs of our growth, which was, you know, immense. Quadrupling our size meant we needed to look at areas to make things more efficient, more simplified to eliminate redundancies, especially with extra labor. So like that's why we ended up having to restructure a bunch of different departments. That's why we had to, you know, create things like leveling. So like people get promotions and raises equally and fairly, you know, so it's like everything is, you know, makes sense. And, you know, it's not like a, somebody is rewarded for asking for more. It's based on, you know, the same metrics apply to everybody equally. It means that, you know, turning inventory efficiently and simplifying tasks benefits everybody. Doing so creates profit sharing for all staff equally. And, um, but now we're going to look at the budget, which is truly the main event you're all here for, I'm guessing. Um, 2023 budget. Did that work? Excellent, I assume. Okay, yeah, there we go. It's, there was a little pause. So you can see here, there's a couple different things going on. So 
you know, you have your 2023 average spending, and that's our actual spending. And then in column C, you have our 2023 budget, which is like what we intended to spend. And um, so, for example, you can see that distribution inventory is still about $8,000 over budget for the year. But then over here in columns I through, you know, ZZ, you can also see that the numbers are going down rapidly since, uh, you know, since April. And a lot of this, you know, so we will land within our budget by the end of the year is the idea. And then you can see like compared to column D where we look at last year's actual spending and then column E where you can look at the change between the two. And that's, so that's really interesting. Like we cut distribution inventory by 31% in terms of dollars. We increased payroll, we increased contractors, we increased publishing inventory. But sometimes that's like when we pay a bill. So that can be a little bit clunky. You know, shipping is more or less the same, which is kind of cool. Partner payments, that's like owner share payments, that's down compared to last year. And that's mostly because like I haven't been taking a paycheck for, or I'm sorry, I haven't been taking much of a paycheck this year to help afford the funding of the growth, which like feels like a more urgent pressing need. And commissions is, uh, that's slightly misleading because we don't have the figure yet for October, but that should be pretty close. Partly it's like, because fare has been down compared to last year, that's partly why that is down, but there's some other complicating factors. Um, royalties are up, you know, supplies are way down, I think because we bought so many shelves last year, believe it or not. Shelves can be that expensive, <laughs> like twice as expensive as what we pay now. And then you'll see supplies go down again because we like cut all the box spending, which is now our biggest supply cost. New building sends prices way up because we had to spend a ton on that. Um, insurance is up 46%, which is kind of wild. Um, events are down because we've been doing fewer of them. Phones are way up, I think, because Cleveland got the faster internet. And um, and then, you know, taxes have been up, but that's just, that's like something you can't always plan or predict for. Um, and then most of those things, we didn't log um, some of these as separate categories until this year. So that's partly why you don't see that. And then um, you'll see, some of the stuff, you know, that gets pretty small numbers. Um, and then one thing we've started tracking this year is credit card rewards, which is basically like free money. Like, and this was the moment that I just absolutely could not believe it where I talked to our tax preparer and I said, how do we pay income on credit card rewards? And she said, you don't. And I said, but we get the money back and it's kind of a lot of money. And she said, you don't. And I said, surely you misunderstand. That can't possibly be how it works. And then I thought about who writes the tax code. So that is something um, that is a little bit weird and also has made this past year quite a bit easier because, you know, that's like 
nearly $60,000 that we're going to have in free money. So um, that is the basic budget. And then back to, so, you know, we're, it's reality versus projection versus last year is essentially like the notion. And then you can look those things up at any time, like that's all logged and, you know, and um, so in the first half of the year, we're insolvent, partly because um, we were just getting hit with so many bills and customers were paying late by and large. So we were having to pay bills late in turn. And then when we got the surprise offer to buy the third warehouse next door, we had to jump on that. And then that was like even more money. Um, and then, you know, retailers were nervous and reluctant and hesitant to pull the trigger on reorders. And then, you know, so like all this had kind of like coagulated to make things a little more complicated for me. But then, um, you know, we really, we kind of hit our stride starting in May and then really landing in September by, and by September we were like $85,000 in the black. And then that was what paid off all those insolvent months in the first half of the year. So that was great. Um, and then since then, it's actually been remarkably easier. Um, and, you know, and I knew when I made those choices that worst case scenario, we could have borrowed the money, you know, but obviously it's better not to have to borrow the money because the interest rates were like really high earlier this year. So instead what we do is we put our expenses on four credit cards, and then we pay them as they come due or as they hit their credit limits. So then we don't have to pay interest on those loans. We only have to pay interest to like manage our credit line, which is something we have to renew every few years. And then, um, so in the past year, most notably, we cut the budget by $500,000, mostly in distribution inventory. And um, so one of the things that I did to prepare and I did prepare more than I usually do for today, is that I ran year-over-year -year comparative numbers, and I had a really shocking discovery that, so first of all, we're going to look at uh, the past calendar year. And uh, so this is November of 2022 versus November today and so you know these are our best sellers it's like you know unfuck your brain followed by licensing unfuck your brain followed by unfuck your boundaries etc cetera, etc cetera. but down here we can look at what we're spending versus what we're selling and that compared to the oh no i when I change tabs, it doesn't change tabs. Um, when I look at the comparative year over year, I had an even more shocking realization, which is that we cut 580, or I'm sorry, we cut $577,000 out of distribution inventory. So what the math that I created says is that, so that should reduce our sales by that amount 
plus the $15,000 in profit that, you know, spending $500,000 creates about $15,000 in profit, which is like a very depressing, you know, proportion because it's, we make 3% on those sales. So, but what we at, what I actually found when I compared those numbers is that our distribution sales fell by $589,000 and we saved $577,000, meaning instead of making $15,000, we would have only made $12,000. So, and that's supposed to include all the labor and, you know, like, the, you know, having an extra $500,000 in inventory coming and going would definitely like require another person to be handling it, you know? And so what we probably would have, it probably would have cost us even more to do that. And so, you know, it, it both showed that the, the statistics that we have that we operate on are pretty accurate. And then it also showed me that we actually were those numbers were a little too optimistic like we're actually we would do 20 percent less than that so you know you could look at it a few different ways you could look at it as like we lost twelve thousand dollars in sales by not handling all that inventory but you know not doing that allowed us to focus on selling and handling books where we could you know invest that money in our staff instead and then you know also have more room to work because you know there's less inventory and you know we're focusing on stuff where we're not just spinning our wheels by touching that inventory so um and then some of the other things that i found in running through this is that we increased spending on wages by 18 percent and spending on insurance by 46 percent in 2023 over 2022 meaning we paid the same money to people instead of to publishers, which, you know, was the point, you know, was the goal. And then um, the sales and labor we are doing, you know, it it's creates more or it goes further towards profit sharing and funding our growth costs. We increased our total capacity by a third because we added the extra, you know, warehousing and staffing. And then you know, we know that obviously, like, if you buy less inventory, if you have fewer books, you're going to sell fewer books. Like, that's sort of a, you know, not a surprise. But we didn't know the actual negative net sales until I realized that that experiment had kind of shaken out in real time, like, almost exactly as we had intended to, which, you know, it is always surprising when you do something and then it works out almost exactly. Um, but so looking at it that way, you know, I looked at like how we used that money and, you know, 250,000 of that, which is about 6% of our total budget increased our warehousing by 33%. Um, the additional warehouse capacity will add about $206,000 in sales next year. And then that'll go up about 20 to 24% every year, you know, both in like terms of efficiency and in terms of, you know, just like having more opportunities and that. And then, um, 
you know, so we're looking at this like a very long-term investment, but it will earn out in 2025 already, which was also sort of surprising. So we increased staffing budgets by $360,000 or by 29% over 2022. And um, that's because when we ran the evaluation, we found that each additional marketing person creates $104,000 in sales, which was kind of shocking, you know? Like, again, that was, that's much better than the amount of, <laughs> that's much better than like what you get out of buying $500,000 worth of books, you know? So, and, you know, I think this is kind of like the way that, um, you'll hear this a lot, but like in the industry, the real, like it's like the people that make the industry. And a lot of this is just because it's like a person can make a book seem a lot more compelling than, you know, a price can is something that has been tossed around a lot. So, you know, again, it's like as long as staff are working towards the same goal and using the systems well, each person adds value and profit sharing for everybody, which has, you know, been really interesting. And, um, you know, so we realized that we could spend this money, you know, if we moved all of this $500,000 into people, we could create, you know, an additional $540,000. But again, despite that being the simplest path to increasing wages, the real problem there is that like when you like push anything on overdrive you're essentially like creating risk so to mitigate that and then you know we didn't want to implode by you know factors changing before we could implement it you know so we're hiring one new person this month and then you know we'll see the net benefits of that and then we'll see what that adds in required inventory we'll see what that requires in like material handling and you know and then we build our way up gradually rather than having to do it all at once so you know the reality is that some more inventory will be needed some you know like more because we don't want to recreate the problems of 2014 all over again you know we want to do everything incrementally because you know otherwise we would be needing an entire another warehouse for receiving so um, it's like preventing the vicious cycle from creating the constant need for funding growth because growth is can could be the most expensive thing. So, um, you know, for example, you know, when the Cleveland warehouse was filling up much faster than it was supposed to, because, you know, again, we didn't expect sales to explode in the way they did in 2021 and then we found out that we were like oh the more inventory we have and the more people we have writing about books the more books we sell and then the more books we sell the more space we need and oh we're out of room so um in february we cut initial buy of new title from 24 copies to 12 copies that was like a collaboration with the warehouse staff and then in july we cut that further from 12 copies to six copies. So that's every new book that we or that we've never sold before. You know, we get six copies. But part of that is we're getting eight new titles per purchase order instead of four. And so this it helps like our dimensionality 
because rather than just buying like you know four new witchcraft books or whatever it um and you know we're getting a wider range of newer titles so we're looking at like oh okay these if we get stuff that's peripherally adjacent to what we are already selling well then we sort of know that it will take and if it doesn't go over or if it goes over kind of slowly then it's not a big deal because you know we're not spending a ton of money and we're not taking up a ton of time and or space you know so that's been sort of a winning strategy for us um and you know i apologize to the marketing department who gets the brunt of that but has been doing a fantastic job of you know we went from i think there was like 500 titles in the data backlog and now we're like been we've been holding steady for quite some time now um and you know again that's like all to increase the like diversity and range of like what we do and then you know creating more opportunities so um you know it's a little too soon to make like great jostradamus predictions or proclamations but it seems like buying eight new titles and six copies of each is working. So, you know, even with this like really uncertain year, we're still adding over 140 new stores per month. And the gift sales have begun tipping back up. You know, we're up 5.5% over last quarter. The sales team increased in-house sales by $17,000 year to date over last year, despite, you know, this being like a weird year. And then, um, you know, we are maybe an outlier in just about every way is an important thing to keep in the back of your mind always. But, you know, most publishers manage the fact that the average book sells 2,000 copies in its lifetime by just publishing hundreds of books a year, you know, which is like a terrible strategy in my opinion. It's a fool's errand. It's just like throwing stuff at the wall and then recycling everything that lands on the floor. It's super expensive. It's super wasteful. It's like damaging to the marketplace. It's very good for printers, but it like sucked up a lot of the paper. And you know, the opposite example is uh, Marianne Cole who started Bright Ring Publishing. She publishes literally one book per year each of which has sold over 100,000 copies under when she was ran, running the company. I don't know if that's still true. She has since retired and sold the company. And, you know, like this is obviously like a superior model to publishing hundreds of books that like may or may not sell any. But, you know, even then you're going to see like deflating sales over time. So like that's why we focus on things that don't have a shelf life that are essentially like an evergreen, you know, in terms of like their appeal. So for now, our most solid plan is the same thing we've been doing, you know, publishing about 40 books per year, knowing that each one will sell about 2,000 to 20,000 in their lifetime. And, you know, this is a volume that's like easier to print, it's easier to receive, it's easier to manage, it's easier to store, it's easier to budget for, it's easier to ship. And, you know, the, these costs did go up 14% this year but you'll see this abate plateau and shrink a little bit in 2024, partly as like we've been negotiating on prices and partly as like, you know, we've been managing print runs somewhat more aggressively. 
for space and spending reasons. So we tried to do a number of big books in October and November of 2022, as you may recall. The Microcultural Revolution sold 8,500 copies to date. And, you know, so it will sell tens of thousands in its lifetime. But, you know, it would have been much bigger in a different year when buyers weren't so nervous. And then Culpepper's Complete Herbal, it's, you know, we projected it to sell 3,300 copies in the first year, but it's sold about 2,500 after returns. And, you know, a lot of that was due to, you know, Ingram over-ordering and over-returning. You know, it's not a flop by any means. You know, it'll continue to sell in perpetuity for years to come as, you know, each specialty and gift store buys, you know, one or two copies at a time. Like, that's great. That's like a very manageable thing for us to handle. It's just like a lot to sit on in terms of cost and space at the moment. So um, overall, the biggest trouble remains that the conventional book trade market is thoroughly saturated. Like there's too many books. Anyone who has worked in a bookstore and purchasing or ever gone book shopping knows that there's literally tens of millions of options of in-print books that you can order. Um, and so, you know, we've nonetheless dabbled a bit in that, you know, we did experiments this year with how to protect bookstores and why and our strangers and, you know, the results have been mixed. It's not fantastic. It's not, you know, but it's, you know, it's been better than it has been in years past. Um, so while we've done a great job of sales on that channel overall, it's like a super volatile channel, you know, like we saw with Culpepper. You know, so for example, like we got 13 boxes of returns of our strangers yesterday and like it's pre the holidays, you know, so like that book will have a shorter self shelf life than most of our books. And, you know, when it ends, it will end very hard. And so um, this is why we focus more on special sales markets and more recently gift sales markets. Um, while the discounts are deeper and we pay bigger commissions, the books are not returnable and the stores are put in the position of having to become the book's advocates. So they buy more selectively instead of shipping them back to us. So those stores have been, you know, really good for a book like Culpepper. You know, so while a bookstore will order it, it'll be an afterthought and like a special order title in a year, like say by now for a bookstore, whereas like a special sales or a gift customer will continue to buy those one or two copies in perpetuity. And um, so this is how we've maintained returns rate being so low compared to industry standards. You know, ours is 1.4%, industry standard is 20. So, you know, we're doing well in that regard. Um, the best thing you could say um, about the book publishing industry overall though, is that it's incredibly robust, like sales, are pretty much where they've been for as long as people have been monitoring the sales of books in retail you know so we just aren't seeing the big like drops like music industry did or journalism or things like that you know it's unbelievably consistent you know it's just like competitive people want paper books they're willing to pay more for them they're willing to pay more money than they were previously you know um fascinating studies that people are willing to spend more than they were 10 or 20 years ago on a book you know even including inflation because they understand that 
when you don't pay what a book costs, you don't get what a book's worth, or you don't get a book that's worth your time, you know? And that's um, been a really interesting shift in the past, you know, I'd say even five years. So a few things that we learned during the Penguin Random House DOJ trial, um, the two biggest breakthrough details were that 4% of books earn 60% of profits, which is basically like the celebrity memoirs of the world and like the Colleen Hoover's and the, you know, the books that are just like holding onto the whole pie. Um, but the market is shifting in favor of large independents. Simon and & Schuster and Penguin Random House have been, had been, at, they cannot grow. They have not been able to grow in the past 10 years, we learned. Um, the only way they can grow their market share at all is by distributing independent publishers, which I found completely fascinating. Um, and then the major revelation that we saw from BookScan, who monitors book sales from uh, publishers that choose to be included during the pandemic, is that the largest 100 publishers who are independent, you know, so smaller than the big five, but, you know, the bigger independents, this may or may not include us, like, we don't know, we don't submit data to them, so we aren't entirely positive. But those publishers grew 12% of the total market. So they took that from the majors and the smaller independents. And though at the same time that we don't know, it seems very likely that we are within that because we grew 400% during that period of time. So it is very likely that we saw that demographic shift. Um, that means that like what we're doing is correct. You know, we should keep doing what we're doing and take opportunities as they come rather than make risky moves or desperate rash decisions, you know. Um, and then a few weeks ago when I was doing the holiday top to bottom assessment of cash flow and sales projectioning, you know, it was like all good news. We're current on paying all of our bills, which I haven't, you know, is like not always a thing that I'm able to say at this time of year. And um, so I'm like, just like confused why there's so much catastrophizing throughout the industry and why there's so many layoffs, you know, because it's like, we're really seeing that from just about every company, you know, every day. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me, but other than the fact that these are the same companies that had budget freezes and you know they were not spending money during the pandemic now they're having now they're seeing the consequences of that so they cut their budgets now their sales are reduced so now they're having to further cut their staffing which is like going to hurt their sales further in the years to come you know so there's a little bit of um that's i guess your joe stradamus prediction if there was one so that's why while we continued hiring and growing and like expanding our capacity you know they were like oh you're really brave and we're like well no we're we're just sort of following like the trajectory of trajectory of what's happening you know so that's um you know and then similarly it's like the same reason why we don't chase like overhyped big books or you know don't try to you know over predict sales on anything it's like you let things grow incrementally and reprint as they need to. Um, and so, you know, we've we've had our share of good news. Um, we were down from last year nearly 20% most of the year, but we've like closed half of that gap. 
and we will probably meet it, you know, knock on wood, by the end of the year to be more or less flat with last year. We're still up 21% over 2021 year to date. So that's like, you know, fantastic. Um, we increased Canadian sales 819% in five years. That was another shocking statistic I learned in the last month. Um, Cleveland had record outgoing shipments in October, 41,378 units. It's a lot of books. And then, you know, so that means that like stores are stocking up, which means that we're going to see those increased revenues in November and December. So that's, you know, things are going well. But that's the major reason why daily habits, protocols, best practices are so important to adhere to is that like that's how everybody else knows that their coworkers can be relied upon that like things are working that you know policies and decisions like have a purpose you know to support the rest of the teams and coworkers you know and um and that's everything from like orders entered into you know prompt reprints in our system to setting up the most valuable titles most prominently at events to like shipping orders in the sequence of their dates so we can get paid based on you know those shipment dates to getting books edited and laid out in the correct sequence to you know like support what we know will be the biggest titles of you know next season and those schedules um and so it looks like from all that we know we cut budgets in the right way to have a financially solvent year despite the uncertain economy and you know more importantly you know we're still gonna see consistent sales i think despite those budget cuts which is like that's been really interesting too industry did or journalism or things like that you know it's unbelievably consistent you know it's just like competitive people want paper books they're willing to pay more for them they're willing to pay more money than they were previously you know um fascinating studies that people are willing to spend more than they were 10 or 20 years ago on a book you know even including inflation because they understand that when you don't pay what a book costs you don't get what a book's worth or you don't get a book that's worth your time you know and that's um been a really interesting shift in the past you know i'd say even five years so a few things that we learned during the penguin random house doj trial um the two biggest breakthrough details were that 4% of books earn 60% of profits, which is basically like the celebrity memoirs of the world and like the Colleen Hoover's and the, you know, the books that are just like holding onto the whole pie. Um, but the market is shifting in favor of large independents. Simon and & Schuster and Penguin Random House have been had been it, they cannot grow. They have not been able to grow in the past 10 years, we learned. Um, the only way they can grow their market share at all is by distributing independent publishers, which I found completely fascinating. Um, and then the major revelation that we saw from BookScan, who monitors book sales from uh, publishers that choose to be included during the pandemic, is that the largest 100 publishers who are independent you know, so smaller than the big five, but, you know, the bigger independents, this may or may not include us, like, we don't know, we don't submit data to them, so we aren't entirely positive. 
but those publishers grew 12% of the total market. So they took that from the majors and the smaller independents. And though at the same time that we don't know, it seems very likely that we are within that because we grew 400% during that period of time. So it is very likely that we saw that demographic shift. Um, that means that like what we're doing is correct. You know, we should keep doing what we're doing and take opportunities as they come rather than make risky moves or desperate rash decisions, you know? Um, and then a few weeks ago when I was doing the holiday top to bottom assessment of cash flow and sales projectioning, you know, it was like all good news. We're current on paying all of our bills, which I haven't, you know, is like not always a thing that I'm able to say at this time of year. And um, so I'm like just like confused why there's so much catastrophizing throughout the industry and why there's so many layoffs, you know, because it's like, we're really seeing that from just about every company, you know, every day. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me, but other than the fact that these are the same companies that had budget freezes and, you know, they were not spending money during the pandemic. Now they're having, now they're seeing the consequences of that. So they cut their budgets. Now their sales are reduced. So now they're having to further cut their staffing, which is like going to hurt their sales further in the years to come, you know, so there's a little bit of, um, that's, I guess, your Joe Stradamus prediction, if there was one. So that's why, while we continued hiring and growing and like expanding our capacity, you know, they were like, oh, you're really brave. And we're like, well, no, we're, we're just sort of following like the trajectory of trajectory of what's happening, you know, so that's, um, you know, and then similarly, it's like the same reason why we don't chase like overhyped big books or, you know, don't try to, you know, over predict sales on anything. It's like you let things grow incrementally and reprint as they need to. Um, and so, you know, we've we've had our share of good news. Um, we were down from last year nearly 20% most of the year, but we've like closed half of that gap and we will probably meet it, you know, knock on wood, by the end of the year to be more or less flat with last year. We're still up 21% over 2021 year to date. So that's like, you know, fantastic. Um, we increased Canadian sales 819% in five years. That was another shocking statistic I learned in the last month. Um, Cleveland had record outgoing shipments in October, 41,378 units. It's a lot of books. And then, you know, so that means that like stores are stocking up, which means that we're going to see those increased revenues in November and December. So that's, you know, things are going well. But that's the major reason why daily habits, protocols, best practices are so important to adhere to is that like that's how everybody else knows that their coworkers can be relied upon that like things are working that you know policies and decisions like have a purpose you know to support the rest of the teams and coworkers you know and um and that's everything from like orders entered in, you know prompt reprints in our system to setting up the most valuable titles most prominently at events to like shipping orders in the sequence of their dates 
so we can get paid based on you know those shipment dates to getting books edited and laid out in the correct sequence to you know like support what we know will be the biggest titles of you know next season and those schedules um and so it looks like from all that we know we cut budgets in the right way to have a financially solvent year despite the uncertain economy and you know more importantly you know we're still gonna see consistent sales i think despite those budget cuts which is like that's been really interesting too when you have a performance goal versus a data metric that means you don't need to say you need to do more or you need to do better or you need to be more efficient because you can more or less predict the future all the time so and you know and like i would like to think that that creates less stress and less pressure though everybody kind of has a pretty um everybody has a certain amount of uh expectation and damage that come from with former employers is sort of the thing all the time um you know this is why we rely on everybody individually and the why we divide the spoils from the dungeon crawl equally so that everybody benefits when we have a boom time but i will also give you your additional homework which is that for 2024 i want you to pay attention to and come up with metrics and data points that we should be measuring. Like what would be the information that would make your job faster, easier, or more efficient? You know, what should we be measuring? And so each day as you do your job, think about that and please send me your ideas. Thanks for joining us once again. Please send your questions to podcast at microcosmpublishing.com so we can answer them on future episodes. And please give us five stars on iTunes and everywhere else that podcasts are reviewed. You can find us on the internet at microcosm.pub. On Twitter at microcosm. On Facebook at microcosm publishing. On Instagram at microcosm underscore pub. And here in Portland, Oregon on North Williams Avenue. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful week.